Book five, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, part two, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three, by Francois René de Chateaubriand. Translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book five, part one. Madame de Chateaubriand had been very ill during my travels. Her friends had often given her up for lost. In some notes, which M. de Clausel has written for his children, and which he has been good enough to permit me to look through, I find this passage. M. de Chateaubriand left on his journey to Jerusalem in the month of July 1806. During his absence, I went every day to Madame de Chateaubriand. Our traveller did me the kindness to write me a letter of several pages from Constantinople, which you will find in the drawer in our library at Cousergue. During the winter of 1806 to 1807, we knew that Monsieur de Chateaubriand was at sea, on his way back to Europe. One day I had gone for a walk in the garden of the Tuileries with Monsieur de Fontaine, in a terrible west wind. We had taken shelter on the terrace by the waterside. Monsieur de Fontaine said to me, Perhaps at this minute a blast of this horrible storm will wreck your ship. We learnt since that this presentiment was very nearly realised. I make a note of this to express the lively friendship the interest in Monsieur de Chateaubriand's literary fame, which was to increase by this voyage, the noble, the deep and rare sentiments, which animated Monsieur de Fontaine, an excellent man whom I too have to thank for great services, and whom I urge you to remember in your prayers to God. If I were destined to live, and if I could cause to live in my works all the persons who are dear to me, how gladly would I take with me all my friends, full of hope, I brought home my handful of gleanings. My period of repose did not last long. By a series of arrangements, I had become the sole proprietor of the Mercure. Towards the end of June 1807, Monsieur Alexandre de Laborde published his journey in Spain. In July, I wrote the article in the Mercure, from which I have quoted certain passages, when speaking of the death of the Duc d'Anguien, when in the silence of abjection, etc. Bonaparte's successes, far from subduing me, had revolted me. I had gathered fresh energy in my opinions, and in the storms. I did not in vain carry a face bronzed by the sun, nor had I exposed myself to the wrath of the heavens, to tremble with darkened brow before man's anger. If Napoleon had done with the kings, he had not done with me. My article, falling in the midst of his successes and of his wonders, stirred France. Copies in manuscript were distributed broadcast. Several subscribers to the Mercure cut out the article and had it bound separately. It was read in the drawing-rooms and hawked about from house to house. One must have lived at that time to form an idea of the effect produced by a voice resounding alone amid the silence of the world. The noble sentiments thrust down at the bottom of men's hearts revived. Napoleon flew out. One is less irritated by reason of the offence received than by reason of the idea one has formed of oneself. What? To despise his very glory? to brave for a second time the man at whose feet the universe lay prostrate. Does Chateaubriand think that I am an idiot, that I don't understand him? I will have him cut down on the steps of the Tuileries. He gave the order to suppress the Mercure and to arrest me. My property perished, my person escaped by a miracle. Bonaparte had to occupy himself with the world. He forgot me, but I remained under the burden of the threat. My position was a deplorable one. When I felt bound to act according to the inspiration of my sense of honour, I found myself burdened with my personal responsibility, and with the trouble which I caused my wife. Her courage was great, 
but she suffered none the less for it, and those storms successively called down upon my head disturbed her life. She had suffered so much from me during the revolution. It was natural that she should long for a little rest, the more so in that Madame de Chateaubriand admired Bonaparte unreservedly. She had no illusions as to the legitimacy. She never ceased predicting what would happen to me on the return of the Bourbons. The first book of these memoirs is dated from the Vallée au Loup on the 4th of October, 1811. I there give a description of the little retreat which I bought to hide me at that time. Leaving our apartment at Madame de Coilin, we went first to live in the Rue des Saint-Pères, in the Hôtel de la Vallette, which took its name from the master and mistress of the hotel. Monsieur de la Vallette was thick-set, wore a plum-coloured coat, and carried a gold-headed cane. He became my man of business, if I have ever had any business. He had been an officer of the buttery to the king, and what I did not eat up, he drank. At the end of November, seeing that the repairs to my cottage were not progressing, I determined to go and superintend them. We arrived at the valley in the evening. We did not take the ordinary road, but went in through the gate at the foot of the garden. The soil of the drives, soaked through with rain, prevented the horses from going. The carriage upset. A plaster bust of Homer placed beside Madame de Chateaubriand dashed through the window and broke its neck. A bad omen for the martyrs, at which I was then working. The house, full of workmen laughing, singing and hammering, was warmed by blazing shavings and lighted by candle-ends. It looked like a hermitage illuminated at night by pilgrims in the woods. Delighted to find two rooms made fairly comfortable, in one of which supper had been laid, we sat down to table. The next morning, awakened by the sound of the hammers and the songs of the husbandmen, I saw the sun rise with less anxiety than the master of the Tuileries. I was in an endless enchantment. Without being Madame de Sévigné, I went, provided with a pair of wooden clogs, to plant my trees in the mud, to pass up and down the same walks, to look again and again at every smallest corner, to hide wherever there was a tuft of brushwood, saying to myself that this would be my park in the future for then the future was not lacking, when, striving to-day by force of memory to reopen the closed horizon, I no longer find the same, but I meet with others. I lose myself in my vanished thoughts. The illusions into which I fall are perhaps as fair as their predecessors, only they are no longer so young. What I used to see in the splendour of the South, I now perceive by the light of the sunset. If, nevertheless, I could cease to be harassed by dreams, Bayard, summoned to surrender place, replied, Wait till I have made a bridge of dead bodies to pass over with my garrison. I fear that, to go out, I shall need to pass over the bodies of my fancies. My trees, being as yet small, did not gather the sounds of the autumn winds, but in spring the breezes which inhaled the breath of the flowers of the neighbouring fields retained it and poured it over my valley. I made some additions to my cottage. I improved the appearance of its brick walls with a portico supported by two black marble columns and two white marble caryatids. I remembered that I had been to Athens. My plan was to add a tower to the end of my pavilion. Meantime I made counterfeit battlements on the wall, separating me from the road. I thus anticipated the medieval mania, which is stupefying us at present. The Valley is the only thing that I regret of all that I have lost. It is written that nothing shall remain to me. After the loss of my valley, I planted the infirmerie de Marie-Thérèse, which also I have lately left. I defy fate now to fix me to the smallest morsel of earth. Henceforth I shall have for garden only those avenues, honoured with such fine names, around the Invalides, among which I stroll with my one-armed or limping colleague. Not far from those walks, 
Madame de Beaumont's cypress lifts its head. In those deserted spaces, the great and frivolous Duchesse de Châtillon once leant upon my arm. Now I give my arm only to time. It is very heavy. I worked with delight at my memoirs, and the martyrs made progress. I had already read some books to Monsieur de Fontaine. I had settled down in the midst of my memories, as in a large library. I consulted this and then that, and next closed the register with a sigh, for I perceived that the light, in penetrating into it, destroyed its mystery. Light up the days of life, and they will no longer be what they are. In the month of July I fell ill, and was obliged to return to Paris. The doctors rendered the illness dangerous. In the time of Hippocrates there was a dearth of dead in the lower regions, says the epigram. Thanks to our modern Hippocrates, there is an abundance to-day. This was perhaps the only moment at which, when near death, I felt a desire to live. When I felt myself lapsing into faintness, which often happened, I used to say to Madame de Chateaubriand, Do not be alarmed, I shall come too. I lost consciousness, but with great inward impatience, for I clung to God knows what. I also passionately longed to complete what I believed, and still believed, to be my most correct work. I was paying the price of the fatigue which I had undergone during my journey to the Levant. Giraudet had put the finishing touches to my portrait. He made me dark, as I then was, but he put all his genius into the work. Monsieur Denon received the masterpiece for the salon. Like a noble-hearted courtier, he prudently put it out of sight. When Bonaparte took his view of the gallery, after examining the pictures, he asked, Where's the portrait of Chateaubriand? He knew that must be there. They were obliged to bring the outlaw from his hiding-place. Bonaparte, whose fit of generosity had evaporated, said, on inspecting the portrait, He looks like a conspirator coming down the chimney. One day, on returning alone to the valet, I was told by Benjamin the gardener that a fat, strange gentleman had come and asked for me, that finding me out he had said he would wait for me, that he had had an omelette made for him, and that afterwards he had flung himself on my bed. I went upstairs, entered my room, and saw something enormous asleep. Shaking that mass, I cried, Hi! Hi! Who are you? The mass gave a start and sat up. Its head was covered with a woollen cap. It wore smock and trousers of spotted wool, all in one piece. Its face was smeared with snuff, and its tongue hung out. It was my cousin Moreau. I had not seen him since the camp at Thionville. He was back from Russia, and wanted to enter the excise. My old Cicerone in Paris went to die at Nantes. Thus disappeared one of the early characters of these memoirs. I hope that, stretched on a couch of daffodils, he still talks of my verses to Madame de Chastenay, if that agreeable shade has descended to the Elysian fields. The Martyrs appeared in the spring of 1809. It was a conscientious piece of work. I had consulted critics of taste and knowledge, Messieurs de Fontaine, Bertin, Boissonnade, Maltebrun, and I had accepted their judgment. Hundreds and hundreds of times I had written, unwritten and rewritten the same page. Of all my writings, this is the most noted for the correctness of the language. I had made no mistake in the scheme of the book. At present, when my ideas have become general, no one denies that the struggles of two religions, one ending, the other commencing, afford one of the richest, most fruitful, and most dramatic subjects for the muses. I thought, therefore, that I might venture to cherish some all-too-foolish hopes. But I was forgetting the success of my first book. In this country you must never reckon on two close successes. One destroys the other. If you have some sort of talent for prose, Beware of showing any for poetry. If you are distinguished in literature, lay no claim to politics. Such is the French spirit and its poverty. The self-love's alarmed. 
the jealousies apprised by an author's good fortune at the outset, combine and lie in wait for the poet's second publication, to take a signal vengeance. Tous la main dans l'encre, jour de se venger. I must pay for the silly admiration which I had obtained by trickery at the time of the appearance of the Genie du Christianisme. I must be made to restore what I had stolen. Alas, they need not have taken such pains to rob me of that which I myself did not think that I deserved. If I had delivered Christian Rome, I asked only for an obsidian crown, a plat of grass culled in the Eternal City. The execution of the Justice of the Vanities was M. Hoffmann, to whom may God grant peace. The Journal des Débats was no longer free. Its proprietors had no power in it, and the census registered my condemnation in its pages. M. Hoffmann, however, forgave the Battle of the Franks and some other pieces in the work, but if he thought Simon Dosset attractive, he was too excellent a Catholic not to grow indignant at the profane conjunction of the truths of Christianity and the fables of mythology. Beleda did not save me. It was imputed to me as a crime that I had changed Tacitus' German druidess into a Gallic woman, as though I had wanted to borrow anything beyond an harmonious name. And behold, we see the Christians of France, to whom I had rendered such great services by setting up their altars again, stupidly taking it into their heads to be scandalized on the gospel word of Monsieur Hoffman. The title of the martyrs had misled them. They expected to read a martyrology, and the tiger who tore only a daughter of Homer to pieces seemed to them a sacrilege. The real martyrdom of Pope Pius Seventh, whom Bonaparte had brought as a prisoner to Paris, did not scandalize them, but they were quite roused by my unchristian fictions, as they called them, and it was Monsieur the Bishop of Chartres who undertook to punish the horrible impieties of the author of the Genie du Christianisme. Alas, he must realise that to-day his zeal is wanted for very different contests. Monsieur the Bishop of Chartres is the brother of my excellent friend, Monsieur de Clausel, a very great Christian, who did not allow himself to be carried away by so sublime a virtue as the critic his brother. I thought it my duty to reply to my censors, as I had done in the matter of the Genie du Christianisme. Montesquieu, with his defence of the Esprit des Lois, encouraged me. I was wrong. Authors who are attacked might say the finest things in the world, and yet excite merely the smiles of impartial minds and the ridicule of the crowd. They place themselves on a bad ground. Their defensive position is antipathetic to the French character. When, in reply to objections, I pointed out that, in stigmatising this or that passage, they had attacked some fine relic of antiquity, beaten on the facts, they extricated themselves by next saying that the martyrs was a mere patchwork. When I justified the simultaneous presence of the two religions by the authority of the fathers of the church themselves, the reply was that, at the period in which I placed the action of the martyrs, paganism no longer existed among great minds. I believed in good faith that the work had fallen flat. The violence of the attack had shaken my conviction as an author. Some of my friends consoled me. They maintained that the prescription was unjustified, that sooner or later the public would pronounce another verdict. Monsieur de Fontaine especially was firm. I was no Racine, but he might be a Boileau, and he never ceased saying to me, he'll come back to it. His persuasion in this regard was so deep-rooted that it inspired him with some charming stanzas, les tasses errant de ville en ville, etc., without fear of compromising his taste or the authority of his judgment. The Martyrs has in fact retrieved itself, has obtained the honour of four consecutive editions, and has even enjoyed particular favour with men of letters. Appreciation has been shown me of a work which bears evidence of serious study, of some pains towards style, of a great reverence for language and taste. Criticism of the subject matter was promptly abandoned. 
To say that I had mixed profane with sacred things, because I had depicted two cults which existed side by side, and which had each its beliefs, its altars, its priests, its ceremonies, was equivalent to saying that I ought to have renounced history. For whom did the martyrs die? For Jesus Christ. To whom were they immolated? To the gods of the empire. Therefore, there were two religions. The philosophical question, namely whether under Diocletian the Greeks and Romans believed in the gods of Homer, and whether public worship had undergone any changes, was a question that did not concern me as a poet. As an historian, I might have had many things to say. All this no longer matters. The martyrs has lived, contrary to my first expectation, and I have had to occupy myself only with the care of revising its text. The fault of the martyrs has to do with the wonderful directness which, owing to what remained of my classical prejudices, I had unadvisedly employed. Startled at my own innovations, I thought it impossible to dispense with a heaven and a hell. Yet the good and bad angels sufficed to carry on the action, without delivering it to worn-out machinery. If the Battle of the Franks, Veleda, Jérôme, Augustin, Eudor, Simodosse, if all these, and the descriptions of Naples and Greece, are unable to obtain pardon for the martyrs, hell and heaven will not save it. One of the passages which most pleased M. de Fontaine was the following. Simodosse sat down at the window of the prison, and resting her head, adorned with a martyr's veil, on her hand, sighed forth these harmonious words. Cleave the calm and dazzling sea, O swift vessels of Osonia! Release the sail, O slaves of Neptune, to the amorous breath of the winds, and bend over the agile oars. Bring me back to the care of my husband and my father, on the happy shores of the Pemysis. Fly, O birds of Libya, whose supple necks so gracefully bend, fly to the summit of Ithamus, and say that the daughter of Homer shall see again the laurels of Messenia. When shall I see once more my bed of ivory, the light of day so dear to mortals, the meadow studded with flowers which a clear water bathes, which modesty adorns with her breath? The Genie du Christianisme will remain my great work, because it produced, or decided, a revolution and commenced the new era of the literary age. The case is different with the martyrs, it came after the revolution had been worked, and was only a superabundant proof of my doctrines. My style was no longer a new thing, and except in the episode of Veleda and the picture of the manners of the Franks, my poem even feels the influence of the places which it has frequented. In it the classical dominates the romantic. Lastly, the circumstances no longer existed which contributed to the success of the Genie du Christianisme. The government, far from being favourable to me, had become hostile. The martyrs meant to me a redoubling of persecution. The frequent allusions in the portrait of Galerius, and in the picture of the court of Diocletian, could not fail to arouse the attention of the imperial police, the more so inasmuch as the English translator, who had no reason to observe any circumspection, and who cared not at all whether he compromised me or not, had called attention to the allusions in his preface. The publication of the martyrs was coincident with a fatal occurrence. This did not disarm the aristarchs, thanks to the ardour with which we are animated for the powers that be. They felt that a literary criticism which tended to diminish the interest attached to my name might be agreeable to Bonaparte. The latter, like the millionaire bankers who give splendid banquets and charge their customers' postage, did not disdain small profits. Armand de Chateaubriand, whom you have seen as the companion of my childhood, who appeared before you again in the prince's army with the deaf and dumb liver, had remained in England. He married in Jersey and was charged with the correspondence of the princess. Setting sail on the 25th of September, 1808, he was landed at eleven o'clock in the same evening on the coast of Brittany, near St. Cast. The boat's crew consisted of eleven men. 
Two only were Frenchmen, Roussel and Quintal. Armand proceeded to the house of Monsieur de Launay Boiset Lucas the Elder, who lived in the village of St. Gast, where the English had once been driven back to their ships. His host advised him to go back, but the boat had already taken its homeward course to Jersey. Armand, having come to an arrangement with Monsieur Boiset Lucas' son, handed him the dispatches with which he had been entrusted by Monsieur Henri Larivière, the prince's agent. I went to the coast on the 29th of September, he says, in answer to an interrogatory, and waited there two nights without seeing my boat. As the moon was very bright, I withdrew and returned on the 14th or 15th of the month. I remained till the 24th of the said month. I spent every night in the rocks, but to no purpose. My boat did not come, and by day I went to the Boise Lucas. The same boat, with the same crew to which Roussel and Quintal belonged, was to come to fetch me. With regard to the precautions taken with Boise Lucas the Elder, there were none besides those which I have already enumerated. The dauntless Armand landed at a few steps from his paternal fields, as though on the inhospitable coast of Torida, in vain turned his eyes over the billows by the light of the moon, in search of the bark which could have saved him. In former days, after I had already left Combourg, with the intention of going to India, I had cast my mournful gaze over the same billows, from the rocks of St. Gast, where Armand lay, from the Cape of the Vard, where I had sat, a few leagues of the sea, over which our eyes have wandered in opposite directions, have witnessed the cares and divided the destinies of two men, joined by ties of name and blood. It was also in the midst of the same waves that I met Geriel for the last time. Often in my dreams I see Geriel and Armand washing the wound in their foreheads in the deep, while, red into my very feet, stretches the sea with which we used to play in our childhood. Armand succeeded in embarking in a boat purchased at Saint-Malo, but driven back by the northwest wind, he was again obliged to put back. At last, on the 6th of January, assisted by a sailor called Jean Brien, he launched a little stranded boat and got hold of another which was afloat. He thus describes his voyage, which bears an affinity to my star and my adventures, in his examination on the 18th of March. From nine o'clock in the evening, when we started, till two o'clock in the morning, the weather favoured us. Judging then that we were not far from the rocks called the Manquier, we lay to on our anchor, intending to wait for daylight. But the wind having freshened, and fearing that it would grow still stronger, we continued our course. A few minutes later the sea became very heavy, and, our compass having been broken by a wave, we remained uncertain as to the course we were taking. The first land that came into sight on the 7th, it might then be midday, was the coast of Normandy, which obliged us to tack about and we again returned and lay to near the rocks called Ecrejo, situated between the coast of Normandy and Jersey. Strong and contrary winds obliged us to remain in that position the whole of the rest of that day and of the next, the eighth. On the morning of the ninth, as soon as it was light, I said to Despain that it appeared to me that the wind had decreased, seeing that our boat was not working much, and to look which way the wind was blowing. He told me that he no longer saw the rocks near which we had dropped the anchor, I then decided that we were drifting, and that we had lost our anchor. The violence of the storm left us no alternative but to make for the coast. As we saw no land, I did not know at what distance we were from it. It was then that I flung my papers into the sea, having taken the precaution to fasten a stone to them. We then scudded before the wind and made the coast, at about nine o'clock in the morning at breville sur eye in Normandy. We were received on the coast by the customs officers who took me out of my boat almost dead, my feet and legs were frozen. We were both lodged with the lieutenant of the brigade of Bretteville. Two days later, Despagne was taken to the prison at Coutances, and I have not seen him since that day. 
A few days after, I myself was transferred to the jail at that town. The next day I was taken by the quartermaster to Saint-Lô, and remained for eight days with the said quartermaster. I appeared once before Monsieur the Prefect of the Department, and on the 26th of January I left with the captain and quartermaster of the gendarme to be taken to Paris, where I arrived on the 28th. They took me to the office of Monsieur Desmarais at the Ministry of the General Police, and from there to the prison of the Grand Force. Armand had the wind, the waves, and the imperial police against him. Bonaparte was in connivance with the storms. The gods made a very great expenditure of wrath against a paltry existence. The packet flung into the sea was cast back by it on the beach of Notre-Dame-d'Alou, near Valogne. The papers contained in this packet served as documents for the conviction. There were thirty-two of them. Quintal, returning to the sands of Brittany with his boat to fetch Armand, had also, through an obstinate fatality, been shipwrecked in Norman waters a few days before my cousin. The crew of Quintal's boat had spoken. The prefect of Saint-Lô had learned that Monsieur de Chateaubriand was the leader of the prince's enterprises. When he heard that a cutter, manned with only two men, had run ashore, he had no doubt that Armand was one of the two shipwrecked men, for all the fishermen spoke of him as the most fearless man at sea that had ever been known. On the 20th of January, 1809, the prefect of the Mange reported Armand's arrest to the general police. His letter commences. My conjectures have been completely verified. Chateaubriand is arrested. It was he who landed on the coast at Bredville, and who had taken the name of John Fall. Uneasy at finding that, in spite of the very precise orders which I had given, John Fall did not arrive at Saint-Lô, I instructed Quartermaster Mauduit of the Gendarme, a trustworthy and extremely active man, to go to fetch this John Fall, wherever he might be, and bring him before me, in whatever condition he was. He found him at Coutances at the moment when they were arranging to transfer him to the hospital, to treat him for his legs which were frozen. Fall appeared before me to-day. I had had Le Lièvre put in a separate room, from which he could see John Fall arrive without being observed. When Le Lièvre saw him come up a flight of steps placed near this apartment, he cried, striking his hands together and changing colour, It's Chateaubriand! However did they catch him? Le Lièvre was in no way forewarned. This exclamation was drawn from him by surprise. He asked me afterwards not to say that he had mentioned Chateaubriand's name, because he would be lost. I did not let John Fall see that I knew who he was. Armand carried to Paris and lodged at the force, underwent a secret interrogation at the military jail of the Abbé. General Hulin, who was now military commander of Paris, appointed Bertrand, a captain in the first demi-brigade of veterans, judge advocate of the military commission, instructed by a decree of the 25th of February to inquire into Armand's case. The persons implicated were M. de Goyon, who had been sent by Armand to Brest, and M. de Boisé-Lucas the Younger, charged to hand letters from Henri Larivière to Messire Laya and Sicard in Paris. In a letter of the 13th of March addressed to Fouché, Armand said, Let the Emperor deign to restore to liberty men now languishing in prison for having shown me too much interest. Whatever happens, let their liberty be restored to all of them alike. I recommend my unfortunate family to the Emperor's generosity. These mistakes of a man with human bowels, addressing himself to an hyena, are painful to see. Bonaparte, besides, was not the lion of Florence. He did not give up the child on observing the tears of the mother. I had written to ask Fouché for an audience. He granted me one, and assured me, with all the self-possession of revolutionary frivolity, that he had seen Armand, that I could be easy, that Armand had told him that he would die well, and that, in fact, he wore a very resolute air. Had I proposed to Fouché that he should die, would he have preserved that deliberate tone and that superb indifference with regard to himself, 
I applied to Madame de Remissard, begging her to remit to the Empress a letter containing a request for justice, or for mercy, to the Emperor. Madame la Duchesse de Saint-Lier told me, at Arenberg, of the fate of my letter. Josephine gave it to the Emperor, he seemed to hesitate on reading it, and then, coming upon some words which offended him, he impatiently flung it into the fire. I had forgotten that one should show pride only on one's own behalf. Monsieur de Goyon, condemned with Armand, underwent his sentence. Yet Madame la Baronne Duchesse de Montmorency had been induced to interest herself in his favour. She was the daughter of Madame de Matignon, with whom the Goyons were allied. A Montmorency in service ought to have obtained anything, if the prostitution of a name were enough to win over an old monarchy to a new power. Madame de Goyon, though unable to save her husband, saved young Boisée Lucas. Everything combined towards this misfortune, which struck only unknown persons. One would have thought that the downfall of a world was in question, storms upon the waves, ambushes on land, Bonaparte, the sea, the murderers of Louis XVI, and perhaps some passion, the mysterious soul of mundane catastrophes. People have not even perceived all these things. It all struck me alone, and lived in my memory only. What mattered to Napoleon the insects crushed by his hand upon his diadem? On the day of execution I wished to accompany my comrade on his last battlefield. I found no carriage and hastened on foot to the Plan de Grenelle. I arrived all perspiring, a second too late. Armand had been shot against the surrounding wall of Paris. His skull was fractured, a butcher's dog was licking up his blood and his brains. I followed the cart which took the bodies of Armand and his two companions, plebeian and noble, Quintal and Goyon, to the Vergerard Cemetery, where I had buried Monsieur de la Harpe. I saw my cousin for the last time, without being able to recognise him. The lead had disfigured him. He had no face left. I could not remark the ravages of years in it, nor even see death within its shapeless and bleeding orb. He remained young in my memory as at the time of the siege of Thionville. He was shot on Good Friday. The crucifix appears to me at the extremity of all my misfortunes. When I walk on the rampart of the Plaine de Grenelle, I stop to look at the imprint of the firing, still marked upon the wall. The Bonaparte's bullets had left no other traces. He would no longer be spoken of. Strange concatenation of destinies. General Hulin, the military commander of Paris, appointed the commission which ordered Armand's brains to be blown out. He had in former days been appointed president of the commission which shattered the head of the Duc d'Enghien. Ought he not to have abstained after his first misfortune from all connection with courts martial? And I have spoken of the death of the descendant of the great Condé, without reminding General Hulin of the part which he played in the execution of the humble soldier, my kinsman. No doubt I, in my turn, had received from heaven my commission to judge the judges of the tribunal of Vincennes. The year 1811 was one of the most remarkable in my literary career. I published the Itinéraire de Paris à Jérusalem, I accepted M. de Chenier's place at the Institute, and I began to write the memoirs which I am now finishing. The success of the Itinéraire was as complete as that of the martyrs had been disputed. There is no scribbler, however inconsiderable, but receives letters of congratulation on the appearance of his farrago. Among the new compliments which were addressed to me, I do not feel at liberty to suppress the letter of a man of virtue and merit, who has produced two works of recognised authority, leaving hardly anything to be said on Bossuet and Fenelon. The Bishop of Alais, Cardinal de Bosset, is the biographer of those two great prelates. He goes beyond all praise with reference to me. That is the accepted usage in writing to an author, and does not count. But the Cardinal at least shows the general opinion of the moment on the itinerary. He foresees, with respect to Carthage, the objections of which my geographical feeling might be the object. In any case, that feeling has prevailed. 
and I have set Dido's ports in their places. My readers will be interested to recognise in this letter the diction of a select society, a style rendered grave and sweet by politeness, religion and manner, an excellence of tone from which we are so far removed to-day. The Moisson by Longjumeau, Seine et Oise, 25th March, 1811. You should, sir, have received, and you have received, the just tribute of the public gratitude and satisfaction. But I can assure you that not one of your readers has enjoyed your interesting work with a truer sentiment than myself. You are the first and only traveller, who has had no need of the aid of engraving and drawing to place before the eyes of his readers the places and monuments which recall fine memories and great images. Your soul has felt all, your imagination depicted all, and the reader feels with your soul and sees with your eyes. I could convey to you but very feebly the impression which I received from the very first pages when skirting in your company the coast of Corfu, and when witnessing the landing of all those eternal men whom opposite destinies have successively driven thither. A few lines have sufficed you to engrave the traces of their footsteps for all time. They will always be found in your itinerary, which will preserve them more faithfully than so many marbles, which have been incapable of keeping the great names confided to them. I now know the monuments of Athens in the way in which one likes to know them. I had already seen them in beautiful engravings, I had admired them, but I had not felt them. One too often forgets that, if architects need exact descriptions, measurements and proportions, men need to recognise the mind and the genius which have conceived the idea of those great monuments. You have restored to the pyramids that noble and profound intention which frivolous declaimers had not even perceived. How thankful I am to you, sir, for delivering to the just execration of all time that stupid and ferocious people which, since twelve hundred years, has afflicted the fairest countries of the earth. One smiles with you at the hope of seeing it return to the desert whence it came. You have inspired me with a passing feeling of indulgence for the Arabs, for the sake of the fine comparison which you have drawn between them and the savages of North America. Providence seems to have led you to Jerusalem to assist at the last representation of the first scene of Christianity. If it be no longer granted to the eyes of men to behold that tomb, the only one which will have nothing to give up on the last day, Christians will always find it again in the Gospels, and meditative and sensitive minds in the pictures which you have drawn. The critics will not fail to reproach you with the men and incidents with which you have covered the ruins of Carthage, and which you could not have seen, since they no longer exist. But I implore you, sir, confine yourself to asking them if they themselves would not have been very sorry not to find them in those engaging pictures. You have the right, sir, to enjoy a form of glory, which belongs to you exclusively by a sort of creation, but there is an enjoyment still more satisfying to a character like yours, that is, to have endowed the creations of your genius with the nobility of your soul and the elevation of your sentiments. It is this which at all times will ensure to your name and memory the esteem, the admiration and the respect of all friends of religion, virtue and honour. It is on this score that I beg you, sir, to accept the homage of all my sentiments. L. F. de Bosset, ex-bishop of Allais. Monsieur de Chenier died on the 10th of January, 1811. My friends had the fatal idea of pressing me to take his place in the Institute. They urged that, exposed as I was to the hostilities of the head of the government, to the suspicions and annoyances of the police, it was necessary that I should enter a body then powerful through its fame, and through the men composing it, that, sheltered behind that buckler, I should be able to work in peace. I had an invincible repugnance to occupying a place even outside the government. I had too clear a recollection of what the first had cost me. Chenier's inheritance seemed fraught with peril. I should not be able to say all, save by exposing myself. I did not wish to pass over a regicide in silence, while the Cambaceres was the second person in the state. 
I was determined to make my demands heard in favour of liberty, and to raise my voice against tyranny. I wanted to have my say on the horrors of 1793, to express my regrets for the fallen family of our kings, to bemoan the misfortunes of those who had remained faithful to them. My friends replied that I was deceiving myself, that a few praises of the head of the government, obligatory in the academical speech, praises of which in one respect I thought Bonaparte worthy, would make him swallow all the truths I might wish to utter, and that I should at the same time enjoy the honour of having maintained my opinions, and the happiness of putting an end to the terrors of Madame de Chateaubriand. By dint of their besetting me, I yielded, weary of resistance, but I assured them that they were mistaken, that Bonaparte would not be taken in by commonplaces on his son, his wife, and his glory, that he would feel the lesson but the more keenly for them, that he would recognise the man who resigned on the death of the Duc d'Enghien, and the writer of the article that caused the suppression of the Mercure, that, lastly, instead of ensuring my repose, I should revive the persecutions directed against me. They were soon obliged to recognise the truth of my words, True it is that they had not foreseen the audacity of my speech. I went to pay the customary visits to the members of the academy. Madame de Vintimille took me to the Abbe Morellet. We found him sitting in an armchair before his fire. He had fallen asleep, and the itinerary which he was reading had dropped from his hands. Waking with a start at the sound of my name announced by his manservant, he raised his head and exclaimed, "'There are passages so long, so long!' I told him, laughing, that I saw that, and that I would abridge the new edition. He was a good-natured man, and promised me his vote in spite of Atala. When later the monarchie selon la Charte appeared, he could not recover from his astonishment that such a political work should have the singer of The Daughter of the Floridas for its author. Had Grotius not written the tragedy of Adam and Eve and Montesquieu the Tombe de Guide? True, I was neither Grotius nor Montesquieu. The election took place. I was elected by ballot with a fairly large majority. I at once set to work on my speech. I wrote and rewrote it a score of times, never feeling satisfied with myself. At one time, wishing to make it possible for me to read, I thought it too strong. At another, my anger returning, I thought it too weak. I did not know how to measure out the dose of academic praise. If, in spite of my antipathy for Napoleon, I had tried to render the admiration which I felt for the public portion of his life, I should have gone far beyond the peroration. Milton, whom I quote at the commencement of the speech, furnished me with a model, in his second defence of the people of England, he made a pompous eulogy of Cromwell. Not only the actions of our kings, he says, but the fabled exploits of our heroes are overcome by your achievements. Reflect then frequently, how dear like the trust and the parent from whom you have received it, that to your hands your country has commended and confided her freedom, that what she lately expected from her choicest representatives she now expects, now hopes, from you alone. O oh, reverence this high expectation, this hope of your country relying exclusively upon yourself. Reverence the glances and the gashes of those brave men who have so nobly struggled for liberty under your auspices, as well as the shades of those who perished in the conflict. Reverence find yourself and suffer not that liberty, for the attainment of which you have endured so many hardships and encountered so many perils, to sustain any violation from your own hands, or any encroachment from those of others. Without our freedom, in fact, you cannot yourself be free for it is justly ordained by nature that he who invades the liberty of others shall in the very outset lose his own, and be the first to feel the servitude which he has induced. Johnson quoted only the praises given to the protector, in order to place the republican in contradiction with himself. The fine passage which I have just translated contains its own qualification of those praises. Johnson's criticism is forgotten. Milton's defence has remained. 
all that belongs to the strife of parties and the passions of the moment dies like them and with them end of book five part one volume three